You're now listening to The Specific Brown Show. Specifically music. Music. Specifically real. Real. Hosted by DJ SB. Your favorite MC. This is where it's at. What's good, y'all? Welcome once again to The Specific Brown Podcast. This is episode three of the new series, and in today's podcast, I'll be interviewing Jay Picasso from ACM. Jay is a music producer, he's a beat maker, and he's also a musician, and he's been in the industry for around 20 years. So today, I sit down with Jay, and we chat everything and anything. Keep it here. Hello, and welcome to the Specific Brown podcast. I'm joined today by the man, the myth, the legend, that is Jay Picasso. Jay, how's it going, man? Yes, 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 Alex, man. Yeah, real good, bro. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here with you uh, this afternoon, man. It really is, bro. I've been trying to get you on for a while, man. Like, um, through other obligations and stuff, like, the pod's been on the back burner for a little bit, but now we're full guns blazing and, like... As far as people who are already in the industry, like you were on the top of my hit list. So I'm glad we managed to get this done today, man. Um, just for the listeners like who may not know who you all are already, would you like to just like give it like a brief bio as to who you are and what you do? Yes, yeah, so uh, my name is Jay Picasso. Um, I am a music producer and engineer. Um, and I also currently... Um, reside at Star City Studios as, as the studio manager. So I kind of dabble in a lot of different bits music-wise, but that tends to sort of sit on the production end of things in general. Sweet. Um, we met through ACM. So um, could you tell the listeners like what your role is at ACM and like how, what, what, what kind of services you provide for the, for the, for the institution and stuff? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so um, at ACM, I currently work as a um, subject specialist so uh, and that is in relation to the rap and MC pathway um, so what that essentially means is that I kind of help um, oversee the uh, the module and how it's run um, obviously I look uh, after and work with a team of uh, facilitators and tutors um, to deliver essentially um, a rap course to young people at uni um, and that you know that's that's what it is on the surface um, but underneath all of that it's really sort of motivating people um, being a support to people being feedback to uh, young musicians um, and rappers and and somewhat being uh, of counsel to them as well and you know helping helping where possible guide their steps um, you know potentially in the right direction for you know, a successful career um, in the music or entertainment industry. That's cool, man. Um, is this your first role as like an educational, like in, in an educational capacity? Like, have you got any previous teaching experience or anything like in a, in a kind of a formal capacity? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, I never really saw it as such, but when I first sort of, when I first came out of uni, because I did a music degree as well at uni, and so when I first left, um, you know, one of the things I didn't want to do was just give up all of my time immediately to a job because I, I knew that that would, you know, more than likely just take me out of the game. You know, I, I know how it is 
one week turns into another and you know all of a sudden you're living within your means and it's now difficult to get out so i knew that immediately what i wanted to do was find part-time work um and in doing so you know there's not uh, at the time there wasn't loads of options for part-time musicians do you know what i mean so um some of those options you know fortunately at the time i managed to work for apple for a little while um and i also managed to work at what was a um it was a privately run but council funded organization that essentially supported disenfranchised youth in South London um, and my role there was as a facilitator was to essentially um, lead on music workshops in various you know various different um, specialities if you like so I would do like DJ workshops production workshops um, you know vocal workshops at times uh, rap workshops you know just anything that sort of connected with the youth that attended these um, organizations. Um, from there, strangely enough, that had given me enough to, um, again, um, you know, further down the line, um, looking for some part-time work. I then got a job at a company um, that was um, essentially like a college. Uh, and there, again, I just taught music production. And from there, <laughs> I navigated my way Again, on this part-time basis to uh, Point Blank, which is in London, uh, even though they've got multiple campuses. Uh, and then more recently, um, through um, you know a friend's referral and um, a little bit of perhaps assistance needed on a particular module, I was uh, you know requested and, and brought into ACM. So it's been a strange, a strange, uh, an unexpected journey I've actually had with education. Um, considering the background I've got in it now. <laughs> um, but it wasn't necessarily something that I had an unexpected to, you know, unravel in my career as such. Nice, man. So it sounds like it took a very organic kind of route from the start to where you are now. When, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what point, what point um, did, like, your future start becoming concrete, like, when you were younger? At what point did it become kind of clear to you that, like, music and, like, music, like tech music production like audio engineering things of that nature that was going to become like who you were like professionally like did you did, did that start at like a college or when you were like really young or i mean yeah so you know the my, my background in music i suppose would have started as a as a young kid i i, I experienced that you know my family's very sort of music oriented my parents um very much you know not only listeners of music but my dad um is a musician himself and my mum is as well so we as children were uh, encouraged really to pick up musical instruments. I don't think necessarily they thought it would be something that I took up as a career. It was just something that they were giving me as, you know, something to, to enjoy as a young person, I think. Um, so yeah, I was quite, uh, you know, I was quite young when I started to enjoy music. You know, I picked up probably uh, the piano first and maybe then like the saxophone, drums um, and then guitar. Um, and obviously, as I got better at each instrument, you know, I found more satisfaction in music and I found what was more like, uh, you know, a, a natural sort of inclination towards it. Um, I then went to the Brit School, which reinforced that, of course, because, you know, you're then surrounded by music uh, like minded people. Um, and again, you know, when you're there, you feel very special. And, um, you know, so that would have reinforced it, the move to then. Um, uni and study again, you know, this is sort of a young musician sort of out of options at this point, other than going directly into the industry to, you know, play, which I was, 
Um, but I was just like, I, I, I still feel like I should study more. So I went to uni and studied it further. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, it was like, when I, when I came out, it was like, well, you know, I'm really geared towards this sort of career now. So um, I only really restricted my options. Like I said, I had a lot of part-time work, but even that um, was music-based. It had to be, you know what I mean? It wasn't just taking up a teaching role or something like that. It was me deciding that I could share what I had, you know, attained across my journey uh, with people, again, like-minded like myself. So... Yeah, I, you know, the truth is I was really, really young. Um, but I also think that, you know, this this life and this career is, is so progressive um, in that, you know, as a young man, the dream, you know, as a boy, really, the dream was to be a musician and just be, a, you know, play drums. You know, the first instrument I really, really found a love for, like play drums for, you know, one of the biggest acts in the world. And that would be my happy place. You know, that quickly changed into uh, just wanting to uh, work in a studio and just, you know, be technical and engineer. And, you know, upon achieving that, that milestone changed. And then it was, you know, produce records. And, you know, I want to produce for, you know, some names I know and, you know, some, you know, more local names, you know, particularly in the UK, you know what I mean? And when that milestone, uh, you know, when I hit that milestone, again, that changed. And so what I have noticed is that um, you have to evolve with the dream because the dream is essentially a moment, you know what I mean? It's like, whatever it is, it's a moment. Um, and so, yeah, the dream has evolved and, you know, obviously as does the industry and as does the music itself. So I have to find myself quite an adaptive person, but um, just to reiterate, yeah, I suppose I was very, very young <laughs> um, when I first kind of, decided to get into it, you know? Nice one. The Specific Brown Shell. The Specific Brown Shell. The Specific Brown Shell. Um, you talked about your journey there, like you, you alluded to like kind of switching your hat, the hat you're focusing on like a certain point from one thing to another. Whilst that was happening, were you all in on on the task you were undertaking at the time, like as as each goal went by, or were you like already kind of like multitasking across with your hat and different pots and stuff? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think it is a bit of both, to be honest with you. There have been some instances where I've achieved what I wanted to because I've been aiming for it and been going for it specifically. Um, those instances are, if I'm honest with you, a lot harder to come by because you have to shoot a lot more often and be prepared to miss a lot more often in order to succeed versus just getting on with, you know, something creative, something um, that you're skilled at and, and then finding that uh, a door opens up um, further down the line just coincidentally or, you know, by someone that you're connected to or something like that, you know. so. I think it's a mixture, to be honest with you. Um, there has to be focus to some extent because this industry now, as always, continues to evolve and change. And because of that, so do the roles within it and so do the things that exist within it, you know? Um, and because of that, you as an individual also have to be prepared to, you know, adapt as well. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a mixture of the two, I think. 
to be honest with you, Al. Cool. Um, what was your first paid gig when you were younger? Like, when, when was the first time you were paid to, like, use your technical skills? <laughs> That's a great question. And that just, the, the way I have to think about that answer just should tell you how old I am, bro. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> that is a madness. First time I was paid. Um, okay, well, right, but we're talking about the use of my current skill set and paid pay in that regard, correct? Like, it could have been, I don't know, like, it could have been, like, a wedding where you, you know, first time you got cash in hand for, like, playing an instrument or, like, if you signed, like, a NDA for a company, it could be something as big as that or anything yeah. in between. There's a lot in between, to be fair. I mean, I, to, to be totally honest with you, without taking a proper hour and good research into what it could have been, I actually can't think <laughs> I can't tell you exactly what the first thing was. Okay. I remember like, yeah, I can remember like being very young um, and the first time I would have received some money to play a gig, you know? The yeah. first time someone would have said to me, uh, you know, we need a drummer for tonight or we need a bass player for tonight. Um, you need to le learn these songs, come along, you'll get paid, you know, 100, 200 pounds at the end of the night and then that's that. And I would have been, you know, probably about 16 or 17 at that age, um, you know, at that sort of time. Um, Production-wise, probably a little bit older. I mean, the first, I'll tell you, I can remember quite clearly the first check I got from, like, an advert placement, um, which was just quite random and just quite beautiful at the same time. <laughs> um, because it, the interesting thing about it was is that it was a really, really old song. Like, I had given this... Um, I had given the uh, music supervisor um, access to, you know, a couple of my songs. Um, and, you know, we had an agreement on it. It's essentially a non-exclusive agreement on it, but still, we had an agreement on it. Um, and it must have been about three years later, he contacts me and just sends me a link to the advert <laughs> with the music on it. Um, and it was just like, wow. And he's like, yeah, and I've also got a check for you as well. Um, and it was just like, just like that. Um, and I think what that taught me as well, which was, really interesting was the fact that you, you just can't plan when when some of your income will come from like there's just no way of doing it sometimes what you've got to do is just sow enough seeds and throw them out there and something will come back um but it's very hard to sometimes plan exactly what will make you money you know as a record producer initially you know what i mean yeah um so yeah um <laughs> regarding um like paid gigs and stuff like do you from when you first started out like entering the industry to today do you think there's been a shift in like like the remuneration of like artists and and like music professionals like is is it a different landscape than it was when like you earlier in your career or is it kind of yeah. and if so why do you reckon that is i mean the landscape of the music industry in my opinion has been shifting now I mean, probably ever since it's real, you know, um, economic boost, if you like. Uh, and, I, and I would argue that was, you know, in the 60s. <laughs> ever since then, I mean, don't get me wrong, changes have been a lot slower. But I'm sorry, you know, from 60s through to about 2000, changes were a lot slower, but you could still see very clear changes in the music scene. From 2000 to 2010, things were still moving in a direction and perhaps stale. But then what happened was the introduction of, you know, Spotify and Apple Music or iTunes at the time um, and, you know, Tidal and Amazon Music and all of these platforms really changed the game kind of for good. 
Um, and again, things are still changing now, but that was a notable change that made, um, you know, some labels redundant. It kind of literally took the power out of a label's hands because up until then it was elusive how you managed to get your music to a place where half the world could just tune into it, um, you know, at the click of a button if it wasn't YouTube. And so the accessibility of this made a lot of labels redundant, changed the independent scene completely, which gave a lot more power to the, the talent uh, and the you know the one man bands and the very small labels it gave a lot more power to them um, and you know in the last ten to five years obviously we've seen a huge shift in the world market in that the UK hadn't had the success sustained on the world platform for as long as it has now you know we weren't reinvesting in our own music as much as we are now um, you know and so yeah there's there's been a lot of shifts and again. We have to we have to kind of nail that down to what will always shift us to go forward in times such as these, which is technology. You know, um, social media huge huge impact on independent artists um, and you know businesses across the world as well. Uh, labels, studios, um, you know, uh, freelancers, um, you know, DJs. It's it's flipped the script for everybody to be their own PR agent, their own. Uh, booking manager, you know, and that is fantastic. But as that shifts, so does the scenes behind it and everything else. So it's it's just really interesting, you know, where things will be in the next, um, you know, 10 years, Alex, where we'll be, you know, because the experience keeps changing. You know, ask yourself how, how it felt to have something like Facebook actually come into our lives. There will be the next version of that. Don't get me wrong. Facebook and Google and everybody else will still continue to grow as company, but we can still expect new products and new ways of delivering our music as we grow and as we evolve as well. So, yeah, it's an exciting time, man. It's also quite a scary time because it means that you've got to be willing to keep up and it means you've got to be willing to reinvest in all of these new technologies because the day you don't, you become a blockbuster video, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Long gone, yeah. So one of those <laughs> was a while ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Um, right at the beginning, stated that, and we all know that um, you've, you're an advisor at ACM, like for the rap and MC course specifically, alongside other things. Um, regarding the urban music scene in the UK, from let's just say from like when Wiley burst onto the scene, like maybe 20, 15 years ago to now, how would you say the UK urban scene has changed? And I don't like using the word urban, but, you know, for the, ben you know, would you say there's been change in the UK, in the UK urban music scene? Uh, and if so, is it for the better or the worse, in your opinion? And um, how, why do you think that's happened? And how, how has that affected, like, artists today who are trying to come up in the scene? Uh, well, it's a really good question. Um, and... Obviously, with certain shifts, even in the last two years, culturally, you know, we're we're sort of now shifting that word urban to, um, you know, music of black orientation. It's just such a long way of saying it, I suppose. But, you know, black music or, yeah, music of, um, you know, diasporic, uh, you know, orientation, whatever. Um, but yes, absolutely. There has been... Um, a shift and and but but it's been a very very positive empowering shift now obviously that would lead me to 
at some point speak about who really benefits from the shift, which I don't think is necessarily a conversation uh, that we have time for now, because the benefactors of such a shift aren't necessarily the same people who are responsible for it. But still, um, there has been more than ever, um, you know, uh, uh, music of black origin uh, in the UK. There has been more than ever uh, an enhancement of, you know, rap, uh, grime, uh, drill, trap, I suppose, um, you know, Afro beats. And again, you could argue that this sort of has grown from, you know, what was a very underground grime scene, what was um, a very, uh, you know, UK-based, Europe-based garage scene, house scene, drum and bass scene. It's all sort of had its say and its play in where we find ourselves today. Um, but yeah, I, I generally think that it's been quite a positive, you know, change in that there is so much more representation. And that's important on, on, on many levels, because obviously, um, you know, when I grew up, uh, representation was down to what MTV put on the, on the television initially. Um, followed by that, you know, in, in my sort of younger man days, it was Channel U, which showed a diverse portfolio of, uh, you know, what was out there. But again, it's, it really is down to representation of what you see, because what you see is what you see yourself being able to be. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that the only um, thing that's good to see is a, is a, is a you know, a, a musician. Um, but I am saying that, it, that to have more representation in the marketplace is a very good thing right now. Um, that, however, does come with its, you know, fair share of problems because, um, you know, more doesn't mean great content. Do you know what I mean? It just means more. Um, and in many instances, we're talking about great content, and in many more instances, we're talking about just content for the sake of it. And and at times, quite, uh, you know, in my opinion, sometimes derogatory content or content that, you know, um, undermines, um, you know, the the demographic that made it, you know what I mean, in that kind of, in that kind of way. So, yeah, it's, I think it's been a very positive move that we've had, and I think independent and again, the, the, the social media aspects and the technological aspects contribute towards that. Um, and so, yes, it, it's, it's, I, think, I think we're in a better place, like in terms of, um, you know, music of black origin being more um, accessible and more in the marketplace now. Um, I think it also comes with the same problems that having lots of music in the marketplace does, which is just to say that you need to start to monitor it perhaps. Uh, and not even regulate it or monitor it, but you know we gotta have we gotta have quality controls over certain things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and that's my that's just my humble humble opinion. In an ideal world, like for quality control, like would you say, like it would be better if people from the, not the fraternity, that's sexist. People from the uh, the culture themselves inherently within the culture, whether they police the scene or whether people from outside of the culture can police the scene. Um, and does it, does it make a substantial difference? Is it like a key difference or does it not really matter to you? I don't know that it can be um, policed, essentially. Um, Sorry, um, policed, yeah. I think that's a bit of a strong word. I don't mean policed, I, I don't know no, what... No, yeah. no, but I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, but that's what I'm saying. I don't think that it can be. I... I think, you know, people will try to, um, you know, the scene 
the, the um, I, I don't know what you'd call, I suppose the, the influencers, the creators, the uh, culture would try to, would try to, you know, elevate who it chose and remove whoever it chose. But what makes something, again, so accessible and successful is the fact that it, it explodes past its culture. So, you know, for grind to now be what it is and, and the drill scene to evolve into what it is, it had to go beyond the grind scene. And so by that point in time, it's now out of control of who created it and now into control of the masses, if you like. And so, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. Um, I, I think, and here's the thing, when we, when we also acknowledge the fact that we're in a business, um, Alex, it, it suggests that it, it really doesn't matter about the quality of the song if that song will still sell. You know, and um, as much as that might offend someone who does it for the art, the truth of the matter is, is that this is business and that if, if that song is going to sell, even with a bad mix, um, just for a TikTok video, then we can still do business. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's where a lot of um, perhaps musicians um, kind of go wrong. They want to control that and they get frustrated by that. But that's just how it works, you know. So... Yeah, unfortunately, it's it is hard to regulate and police, and I don't know if it ever necessarily will be. Okay. Um, do you? I'll ask you this. Um, I think this concept I've I've heard it bandied around a lot to the point where I think where it's called, it's like a broken record. <laughs> um, do you believe in the concept of ten thousand hours to become good or your or great or your craft? And if so. I'm assuming you, you're way past that now. At what point do you reckon you hit the 10,000 hour mark in your career? And what were you doing at the time? <laughs> such, a, such a good question. I, was I might have to come back to that one. <laughs> Give me some time to <laughs> think about it. Yeah, I mean, that is a bad one. I don't know what I was doing at that point. You know, it, 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 I don't know. It worries me. The, the thing about that, Alex, is like, yes, I 100% agree that, it, you know, in theory, you know, 10,000 hours doing something would make you a master in that something. The problem is, is that if you are doing something wrong with those 10,000 hours, then you are mastering something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? So the application of those hours is very, 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 I don't know, it's almost... Depend, you know, and that's why it's like, at what point did, because here's the thing, the older I get, the more experienced I get, I start to question the quality, I start to question the quality of the hour I had as a younger man. Do you see what I'm saying? So now as an older man, I'm saying like, yeah, that was an hour then, but really it was 0.25 of an hour because you didn't have the knowledge to process what you did in that time as well as you would now. So in that sense, it could be an ongoing figure. I think the point is, by the time you get to 10,000 hours, you should have forgotten about the fact that this is just now what you do. Yeah. Because here's the thing, you know, if you've worked in, uh, you know, let's say anywhere, let's say you worked in retail for 30 years of your life, you're a master at retail, surely. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure I'm a master at sleep right now. <laughs> of sleep, do you know what I'm saying? So... Yeah, there's like a, I think it depends what you do with those hours that defines 
whether or not you've mastered it. And then again, here's the problem. I'll give you a real, real straight up problem. If you've mastered it, like Blockbuster Video mastered it, and then the internet comes along, what good were those 10,000 hours anyway? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you've got to be willing to, every now and again, educate yourself. And I, I, I'm a believer in that. If, if I'm a believer in anything, straight through and through, it's like, keep educating yourself. Like, that's the way I'm trying to proceed in life. Like, you are never, because the day you stop educating yourself is the day you'll find yourself behind on something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when you're behind, people perceive you as ignorant or just arrogant <laughs> or just set in their ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, man, that's, that's what I'd say about that. That's a good answer, man. That's a really good answer. I enjoyed hearing you talk about that. That was great. Um, next thing, you look working hard and working smart. Are those two concepts separate in the music industry, or is there an overlap, or is it like one of those uh, those overlapping circles you, you get shown in primary school, where things are in one circle, things are in another circle, and then there's things in both. It's called a Venn diagram. That's the one. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I mean, you you need. To, I, I, if I'm honest, like it, circumstances may change, might may change the results of this, but I I don't think there's many people that can get away with success in this industry and not have done a bit of both at times. I do think that you have to be someone who leans more on the smarter than harder, but there are certainly times where you just you don't have a choice but to work hard. You know, um, and again, you might need to monitor that. You know, I'll give you an example. If you were to, you know, start up a new record label, you know, Universal Music is starting somewhere. Um, you can you can bet that the mo the the, um, the owner is now working very smart, but to get that off the ground, that was very hard work. Um, you know, and I'll I'll monitor and I'll regulate the way I say very hard because to some that's not hard. That's light work. Set up a company, employ a few staff, get this off the ground. That's light work, but. To some, that is hard work. And again, you might have to be the judge of what you refer to as that. But yeah, I think I think it's a mixture of the two. Um, obviously, the older I've gotten, the smarter I want to work um, because I'm realizing that um, actually the, 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 the one commodity that we have that is more precious than anything, the very thing that people exchange all of that um, money for um, is your time, you know? And so... The older I get, the more time I want to have for me. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the smarter I work, hopefully that leaves me with a bit more time um, to leave the hard stuff to someone else. The Specific Brown Shell. The Specific Brown Shell. The Specific Brown Shell. When it comes to your daily working week, like, do you have hard and fast time limits and day limits, like where you 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 because you're self-employed, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you say, okay, I'm self-employed. I need a day off this week, so I'm gonna take Sunday off, and then, for example, I work the other six days of the week, or do you take two or three days off, or does it vary a lot? I mean, and do you, you know, do, you, do you think that helps you having that kind of structure? Well, First of all, structure is is it. Um, structure's it because 
the variables are, de you know, it depends on the individual. Self-employed is such a big quadrant, it's such a big area. People operate in so many different ways, you know, from um, just offering out their skill set to running small businesses. So it's such a big area that um, to be self-employed, you have to make the right decisions according to your circumstances. My circumstances are because of various, um, and let's just refer to them for now as passive income streams. My various, uh, which I'm going to say 60% are music related as well. So my, my, my passive income streams uh, enable me to, um, first of all, have weekends to myself, um, which is fantastic. And this is obviously um, priceless for the family, um, but also enable me to have time in the week, um, which essentially works, works out as a day off, if you like, when I choose to, um, just for, you know, thinking space. Um, and, and that, that can be anything from really driving at the next um, pursuit, or that could be really giving myself, um, you know, enough Netflix that I've chilled out that week <laughs> and I feel like I can get back at it and just, you know, rock up. So, um, yeah, I can't, I can't, you know, tell anyone in a, in a similar circumstance what they what would be best. But what I can agree on is that structure is everything. Um, the one thing about being self-employed that I found in the early years was that it's very easy to act like working all around the clock is beneficial to you um, when it's really not. And actually, it makes you more of a hard worker than a smart worker. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a lot of wisdom and a lot of um, stuff that I've taken over the years, but definitely structure, definitely balance. Um, and, you know, knowing when to switch off, which is not necessarily easy, but um, knowing, you know, what's this all about? Um, I find myself self-employed now because I like to enjoy my life under my somewhat my own terms, um, and so that means enjoying that life when I'm not at work. <laughs> yeah. You know. So yeah, that's that's the balance I have, um, and it does change season to season. You know, um, I've got two daughters now, so that's kind of flipped the script on um, my weekends. Um, you know, but again, season to season, things will change. Um, and so at those times I'll, I'll make the best call balance wise. And again, looking at, uh, you know, my, um, incomings versus outgoings and making the right assessments and balancing it out correctly that, you know, I get enough free time, but also that I'm maximizing as much time as I can and making as much money as I can in that time as well. Sweet. Um, this is a random question, not really contextualized based on what we've been talking about, but, um, when it comes to your skills, like production or playing instruments, did you find that it's like learning to ride a bike and that once you've managed, you've mastered it, then you can just know it and you don't need to go back to it? Or is there a certain element of retention where like you have to keep yourself sharp? Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely retention. Um, don't get me wrong. It, you know, it is like riding a bike, but I don't know if you've ever ridden a bike after 10 years and you know, haven't ridden it. It's, <laughs> what you remember, your confidence won't be the same. That's true. <laughs> you know, wobbly and shaky, do you know what I mean? And you certainly won't be doing any of those bunny hops you were doing as a younger kid. So it's like, if you don't keep up with it, yeah, you know, maybe you don't lose ground, but you certainly won't be gaining ground. And like I've said as well, with technology, certainly in the production game, that becomes everything, you know, because a few years ago, we've, and I say a few years ago, but, you know, really longer, but I'm talking about the accessibility of it and, and the development of samplers. And, you know, um, softwares and websites now like Splice and so on and so forth that provide producers with 
so many options that, again, you know, when I came up, you actually needed to know how to play an instrument to be a producer. Sampling was a very, very hip-hop orientated thing. And again, in the UK, hip-hop didn't properly, you know, do it on a global scale. So it was a very niche market. So if you couldn't play an instrument, you couldn't produce. You know, yeah, you might be the, um, uh, you know, the, the Louis Walsh in the room, people put, you know, a musician over there, a musician over there. But generally speaking, the role of producer meant you needed to actually play something. And then, of course, technology comes in and suggests that actually, as long as you can drag a sample in and drag a sample in and match two tempos together, you can have a number one record. So, it again, and if you don't keep up with that technology, you're just closing your eyes to it and suggesting that, you know, my methods will do, my methods will do. And it turns out you're, you know, even, even I'll tell you what, even just by not investing in new technologies, what could have, what would have taken you 10 hours to put together now takes, a, you know, a 15 year old 10 minutes to put together because of their tech and their app. And it's like, if you don't learn that, it's just bad business. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, there is something about keeping up and retaining and, you know, seeking out what's new technologies and, what's being used, what's just, you know, what's the what, what's the now, you know, and just keeping a check on it. I wouldn't say you have to jump into everything that flashes up because not everything survives, you know, mini disc didn't survive, um, but you, you need to know what's what and you need to be aware of, you know, what's popping and, and certainly new production tools, if nothing else. You are everything pretty much. You're a musician, you're a producer, you're a performer, you're an artist, like you're, you're kind of a management person, you're a teacher. Um, within the music realm and specifically within the production and the, the instrument side of things, was there one technique or one instrument that you found way harder than the others or were they all similar, like as far as investing your time and you kind of got the results based on that? Um, very good question. Um, my honest answer is that I found saxophone incredibly hard and I didn't find it hard for the fact that it was a hard necessarily instrument to learn the notation for because I formerly had learned like recorder and there are similar, you know, um, techniques that are shared with the recorder and similar techniques that are shared with um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, I can't even remember what it's called. Oboe, clarinet. The clarinet, the yeah. Yeah, the clarinet which was obviously, you, you go clarinet and saxophone. Um, but I, this is the funny thing, this is literally a physical thing, I cannot tolerate the feeling that um, uh, a wooden reed does to my lips when it when you put um, you know when you essentially blow on it and put a vibration through it, um, I can't tolerate it. It feels horrible. Like is it like is it like scratching your nails down a blackboard? Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I tolerated it. Or eating a meringue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somewhere along the line between you know being a kid and some some sort of early adulthood that tolerance just switched. I just like, I can't do it anymore. And so it's like, since then, it's an instrument that I, I have pretty, I picked up, but never enjoyed picking up. And, and yeah, it's just not for me. So, you know, if it, if it tells anyone that not everything is gonna come naturally and just feel like it should, then that should be a real good explanation as to why. On the flip side of that question, is there anything where you're like, I'm damn good at this and no one can tell me otherwise, like one specific thing, you might have more than one, but if there was one you had to put your life on. Do you know what, right? I mean, it, I've probably evolved skill set wise better now as a producer, but at the time, like when I picked up drums, 
Like, that was it. Like, I had never drummed in my life, ever. Ever, ever, ever sat on a drum kit or anything like that. And the first time I sat down, like, I'm sure, I'm sure, I've heard this story from a lot of people before, but I'm like, no, 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 for me, this was legit. This was legit. Like, I sat down and I just knew how to drum. I just started drumming. Like, not just banging, like, random, like, I was playing a solid beat and, and then, you know, my friend was joining in with piano and I was just, like, clear-cut, rocking out and it was just a natural, I almost felt like, oh, like a light had shone down, I could see, the, like, the halo effect, like, right there, like, it felt like that had come down on me and I was like, wow, this is, this is it, this is what I'm supposed to be doing my entire life. Um... And again, that was a very, very immature, uh, you know, teenager sitting at that drum kit, really. I suppose I was younger than the teenagers, then, I think. But I was really immature in that. I, I was naturally gifted. I had no questions about that. Rhythm just came to me, you know, naturally. Because of, you know, my upbringing. So naturally as well. But I, it was a gift that I had. And I still had to go learn drums. I still had to take drum lessons. I had, um, you know, one teacher through my sort of primary school days and then one teacher really in my high school days who was actually a friend of mine um, and both had to show me so much to get me from where I was naturally to, you know, um, being what was quite, you know, a, a, you know, a decent drummer, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and that was the first instrument that I ran up, really, and just gave everything to. And, I, and, I, and that's why I said at the time, I thought if I'm going to go anywhere with this career, not really knowing my options, that it will be to go drum for either studio albums or, you know, whoever's performing next at Wembley, if I'm that good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, drums, definitely. Nice one. Um, I've just finished the MC and Rap Pathway. Um, I was there for two years at ACM. Um, one thing I noticed from a rap point of view, like some of the guys I was with, they were like, they could, they could rap forever. Like, they're bars on bars, amazing penmanship, sense of rhythm. But then a lot of these guys, they couldn't read a lick of music theory. Do you reckon, for rappers in 2021, that music theory is even an, a necessity? Or is it like, is that a long-gone thing? I mean, first of all, no. It's not long-gone. It, it just changes its form. Um... And so the question is, I mean, it's a good question, but it's hard for me to answer clearly because d does the rapper need it? Not necessarily, but does someone in that studio, that musician, that band, that team? Absolutely. You can't get away with not having it. So, you know, if it's not you, then you need to have a really good team that is. It's like, you know, it's like as a, as a rapper, are you a good marketing are you a good digital marketer? Well, maybe not, but if you're not, then you need to get someone on board because to think you can compete with Drake levels and not have a digital marketer somewhere on board your team is just kind of silly. So in the same respect, it's like, no, maybe you don't necessarily need to know what music theory is, but what it's related to, the word it associates itself with is like theory, is like really old school, it's like reading music notation, it's all of that. But if I were to, if I were to flip it to you and tell you that, you know, tomorrow, and I'm speaking to the rapper now, you're going to go into a studio session and put auto-tune on your own voice and select the right key so it sounds right, and I then told you that that was also music theory, you would understand how relevant it is right now. Do you know what I mean? So... Yeah, like in, in, you know, is auto-tune relevant right now? Yeah, I'm going to say so. 
is Melodyne relevant? Uh, and, you know, Melodyne being the, the tool that allows you to literally take someone's uh, single note and move it up or down in the scale. And so is that relevant? Yeah, that's what makes pop so perfect and makes, you know, singers so pitch perfect. And when you hear them live at Glastonbury, why doesn't they sound so good? Well, because they were never perfect, but the engineer made them that way. So yes, does that engineer need to know music theory to some extent in order to do that? Absolutely. Um, is, is, is the technology doing a lot more of the theory for us? Yeah, but is it applied by people who understand theory and therefore maximized? Absolutely. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've been in two, two different instances where I've seen someone apply auto-tune. Um, uh, both, both instances, auto-tune has been applied. One instance, someone just applied it. The other instance, someone applied it and um, applied the right key. Both instances also has been applied, but one time it's been maximized and sounds way better than just added. Yeah. You know, so again, you can you can argue what levels of music theory you need, but will you need some as a rapper going forward? I would say it's safe to say so. Yeah. 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 Um, next question. Um, mixing and mastering and production mm. what, what, how would you define each of those three in like 10 words or less so you can go over 10 if you want <laughs> <laughs> okay mixing, mastering and production um, right let's go backwards because I think that you have to have production first in order to mix and then in order to master yeah. right? so production is the creation generally speaking from scratch of the audio that surrounds the vocals. Um, when you use the word production by itself, it also generally means anything that is involved in recording and creating the record, including vocal production, um, you know, audio production. Um, it it's all sits under the same umbrella. But when we just, as a producer, when we word, when we use the word production, it generally means the beat um, and anything that went into the beat. You can also find on certain big records that there are more than one producer. And that often means that someone started it and then it was sent to another producer for additional production, where he or she adds um, additional sounds or tweaks things, um, manipulates sounds potentially in a way that now adds new characteristics to that beat and therefore worthy of a credit and often paying as well. So that's production. Mixing is once you have this product, and generally yeah, there are levels to mixing because you need to mix a beat before you send it to a rapper or before a rapper wants to listen to it, but also at the point of recording a rapper or a vocalist on that beat or, or that instrumental, you then need to mix that entire product as well. So there's two levels to mixing, but mi what mixing speaks of is it speaks of essentially cleaning audio to make it sound its best. You treat audio in a way where you present each sound individually at its absolute best by oftentimes tweaking certain um, EQs, in other words, frequencies um, in certain um, e uh, e uh, in certain frequency regions um, and and taking out various frequencies as well. Uh, that as well as things like compression and adding various other effects to affect the way sounds actually um, play back. And then, of course, considering all of that in one audio mix, you know, I can have 50 sounds happening. And just to give you an idea of a few different sound sets, drums, keys, bass, guitar, all different sound sets. 
Um, I can have all of that going on, but I still need to, I'm only, I've only got one audio file. And so I need to present all of those sounds as clearly as possible. So you as the listener can hear the keys, the bass, the drums, the key, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's generally mixing. Um, mastering is the last point, point in the process. And mastering is really um, the, <clears throat> I mean, the way I, I, I like to flip this in terms of the, the movie world, so it's understood, is that it's, um, I mean, imagine you're watching a film um, in, you know, if you understand anything about definition, um, you're watching it in standard definition, you're watching it on, uh, you know, uh, television, uh, let's just call it, um, you know, uh, 720. Um, by the time you get that Blu-ray copy, it's the exact same movie, it's the exact same cast, it's the exact same film, same script, same everything, except the resolution has gotten better. And therefore, the image is now clearer and, and therefore more, um, more data is required, but it also provides the, the, the person watching that film with, with a better image than the original. And therefore, in the music world, it's the exact same thing. You're taking that mix of a song and you are essentially doing your best to enhance that product. So, you know, there can be more information, more things heard and a more enjoyable user experience. The last thing that, I mean, it does all of that, but mastering also sort of levels out your song across various different listening platforms. So, you know, it will keep it at a good volume on your laptop, as well as in your headphones, as well as in your car, as well as on your um, iPad, as well as on your, you know, and it will kind of maintain and sustain a good level there as well. So I know that was a lot more than 10 words each, but- That's <laughs> all good. The short is where I can ex explain it, you know? So it's just to let the listeners know that you know what you're talking about and you mean business, man. So. Every so often, man, every so often. For real, man. Um, mixing, master, to go back again, mixing, mastering, production. I know we've got it the wrong way around again. Um, are they always integral to, to a good final copy? Is, is there one where you can have like less? And, but is there, is there one aspect out of those three or if not, maybe I'm wrong and all three are just as important, but is there one aspect where it's like, it's a deal breaker if that's not good? I mean, that's really hard to say because they, all three of them can actually ruin a song if done incorrectly. So they are, are all three of them very, very important. However, you could argue that if you don't master a song, you still have the same song at its core. So by that fact, and I'm not, again, I'm, there's, if you master a song badly, you can still ruin it. But to not master it at all would at least leave you risk-free of ruining it. So yeah. mastering in that sense, you could probably make the least important if you had to. Um, but, you know, you tell that to one of Kanye West mastering engineers and they'll shoot me in the face. <laughs> but in terms of, if they don't have a great product from Kanye to work with in the first place, it, it, it's, it's irrelevant. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so, in, and, and so again, we trace our step back. Um, if you don't have a good beat, then a great mix isn't going to make it a good beat. So, by that standard, you can then get rid of mixing as yeah. the next important thing. Um, and fundamentally, yeah, it's a good, you know, it's a good beat. Um, 
it needs to initially be a good beat. It needs to be, a, you know, a good production at its core, a good song at its core, a good something at its core. And then all of these processes should then enhance it. Um, if you mix a really rubbish song, if you master a really rubbish song that's been well mixed, you still have a really rubbish song. Yeah. Um, whereas if you have a good song and then you mix a good song and then master a good song, yes, you could ruin it with bad mixing and you could ruin it with bad mastering, but at least you can go back to those and amend those and, you know, get them better. Whereas to ask someone to go rewrite, I mean, you might just rewrite a new song. It's not them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you can amend the mixing and mastering at later days or go with a different option, you know. Um, but the production and the original songwriting itself, you, you need to get right. So that's probably the most important. The Specific Brown Show. The Specific Brown Show. The Specific Brown Show. Okay, welcome back to The Specific Brown Show. I'm here with Jay Picasso. Jay, man, so um, what's, the, what's the future hold for you at the moment? What do you reckon? What are your ambitions? <laughs> man, Alex, you know what? I don't stop planning, man. I really don't stop planning. Um, uh, but here's the truth as well. Um, I've got a lot of ambitions. Um, some I'm unprepared to tell you about right now. And that's, that's just because... They're the so, best ambitions. The, the yeah, non-disclosure yeah, agreements. Yeah, NDA. Yeah, that's a bag right there. I can't tell you about all of them right now. Um, but, you know, I will be able to at some point. So, you know, hopefully uh, we'll have another discussion as well about some of those as they unravel. Um, but the ones I can tell you about um obviously i i mean maybe not obviously i've been you know over the last few months i've been working with quite a few um artists which has been really exciting one that has really really excited me her name's Fabella. she's out in um Qatar. um and um one of the tracks that we have been working on is soon to um be dropping and that's again that's that's a really sort of straightforward production answer you know my next song's coming out but um Real talk, it's an exciting record. It's like a real weird kind of vibe for me to have worked on. It's not, it's, it's right up my street, but just the result of us collaborating has caused it to be some really interesting fusion. So that's that. Um, I am also obviously, um, I keep saying obviously, like it's obvious to anyone right now, it's not. Um, I am um, making some plans as well um, of my own um, towards, um, uh, it's hard to put. There's just, there's just, there's just put. Uh, there's a, there's sort of a, a label tr transaction uh, in, in the middle of what I'm up to right oh, now. Oh, that's that's got my ears pricked up, yeah, man. Yeah, there's a there's is it, is transaction it, going are, on. So, are we talking uh, major league? We, we, I mean, we, we're not talking minor league. Hey. <laughs> if that's what you, yeah, there's no minor league about it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting. Um, sort of avenue of pursuit right now. Um, also, you know, I have I have recently, and I say recently, it's not really been recently, but in the background, I've also been working on um, some content for, and I say content, it's really music and um, I, sp I suppose audio books and stories uh, for kids. Um, and so there's like, I've got like a whole line of, um, well, yeah, material content, um, not really sure how else to put it. Um, that is IP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's unraveling itself, um, and it's um, yeah. It'll probably be more accessible to the general market, 
um, by 2022, but it's it's well on its way and it's really exciting. Um, you know, that and just looking at some, you know, potential growth for, uh, you know, what I'm doing here at Star City Studios as well. Um, they're looking to expand and, and, and you know, start more um, affecting and helping the, the community as well. Obviously, the sort of after effects of COVID, uh, particularly on young people, um, we've all been aware of. Um, and I think in, in this local area, it's something that we all want to do something about now. And music being one of those vehicles that serves young people really well, uh, we're aware of how um, effective we can be. So that's something that we're also um, working towards as well. And again, should be something more um, you know, tangible uh, at the end of this year. So there's a lot, there's a lot in the pipeline, Alex. Um, I, there's a lot of stuff that I, you know, I, I hate to discuss without it really being something I can um, send you to a link or to look at or whatever. But you know, in, in this, uh, it's all good, man. We'll get you back on again soon, and then hopefully at that point, like you know, the, you'll be able to spill the beans. Absolutely, absolutely, man. Um, and I would, uh, I would really, really uh, enjoy that. You know, sweet man. Um... Before we jet off, um, do you want to let everyone know like how they can contact you or follow you on socials or like see like your website, see what you do, like if they want to get engaged for you for services and things of that nature? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, um, I mean, you know, you can generally find me on Instagram at j.jay.casso. Uh, that goes for my Facebook. That goes for the, the website, which is jjaycasso.com. Um, obviously, you can find a lot of my... Um, services and stuff at starcitystudios.co.uk um, and find out about um, you know what what we do here as well um, and you know that's that's to the general um, people that are looking for any sort of you know production services as well um, but yeah that's that, that those are probably the best way to find me right now um, and you can find out you know from those links alone you'll be able to um, listen um, you'll be able to watch, you'll be able to, um, you know, certainly get in touch with me if it's, uh, you know, if it's me that you want to get in touch with. <laughs> Epic stuff, man. Um, Jay, man, this has been great. Uh, I'm definitely going to get you on again sometime. And uh, maybe later this month or we'll, we'll see what happens. We're trying to sort something out. But yeah, once again, Jay, thank you very much for your time, man. Much appreciated. Alex, man, thank you so much for having me, bro. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Really appreciate it. Man. Really no worries. All right. That concludes episode three of the Specific Brown podcast series two. Thanks once again for listening. And you can tune in again, same time, same place, next Monday at midday, when my next episode will be released, episode four. In episode four, I'll sit down and chat to Ash from ACM. Ash is a music producer and he works with famous artists such as Chris Nain. And he's made a nice living out of the music industry. So that should be a good one. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And keep it blessed, keep it real. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the SB Show. Come back soon for more cloth talk. Until next time, keep it real, mi gente.